we ask you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask you to please show us Christ. Show us your Son and all of his glory, even the glory of his suffering. And the glory of the redemption that you accomplished through him. Be our teacher, I pray. And we pray together. In his matchless name, amen. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're continuing our walk through the final hours of Jesus' life. Here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that we've been in for quite some time. Matthew chapter 27, we'll be looking specifically this morning at verses 39 through 44. Verses 39 through 44. And our intention is here to go through an extended look at the cross of Christ. There are ultimately going to be five, maybe six messages. The first was last week when we noted the crucifixion of Christ. And so we titled that the cross of Christ... Shame and suffering. And we considered there the, the depth of the shame, the depth of the suffering that Christ endured as he gave himself up to be crucified, to be killed on a tree, as it were, to be counted as a curse by the Jews who considered it a curse to be exposed like that, a double curse to not only be put up on a tree after death, but for the tree to be the means of execution, the most horrible and terrible way to die that has been ever invented by men. And yet our Savior did that by the divine plan of God, according to His eternal purposes. It is what He ordained. It was, in fact, the Father who gave Him up to be crucified, and the Son who, submitting to the Father's plan and the Father's will, also gave Himself up to be killed in this manner. And it was, it was a death of great shame. It was a death of great suffering, and designed to be so according to the sovereign plan of God. This week we move on from that scene of crucifixion, the consideration of all of the torments that went along with that, to consider the reaction of the watching world against him. Though this was planned before the foundation of the world, Though it was anticipated by Christ himself, who on more than one occasion explained it to his disciples. Though it was foreseen by Scripture, again, every detail Matthew is careful to point out was according to Scripture. Yet, as every other testimony to Christ throughout his ministry, so now in his death, he was misunderstood and rejected by the world. And again, it was God's design that it should be so. So read with me from verses 32 through 44. And this morning we'll consider the cross of Christ and the unbelief of the world. The cross of Christ and the unbelief of the world. Again, we'll read in 32 through 44 and then focus on verses 39 to the end. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull... They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Go back up to verse 39, and let's consider first a perverted view of God. A perverted view of God. This is now in these verses the final descent in Matthew's account of the death of Christ, of the humiliation and the shame of Christ, his suffering at the hands of ungodly men. Just before the suffering, he will endure, which is actually to a much greater extent that will be recorded for us in verses 45 through 46, that which particularly comes from the hand of the Father directly against his own soul to cause anguish, an anguish that, again, would be an atonement for our sin. So this is the final and comprehensive expression, though, of the hatred of men towards Christ, towards Jesus, towards the Savior of the world. And it is particularly, as is highlighted throughout here, though it involves Gentile and Jew together, there is particularly a focus here on the rejection of the Jewish nation of Christ as their Messiah. And of course, as we've mentioned before, some use that particular rejection of the Jewish nation and have used it to justify a hatred of the Jews throughout the history of man since these events and have used it to justify all kinds of manner of evil and wicked against The Jewish nation, the Holocaust, of course, being one of the prime examples that we would remember. But the Jews stand here not in any particular or special guilt. They do. I need to qualify that, of course, because they had received the promises. They had received the oracles of God. They, if anybody among the nations of the world, the people of the world, should have recognized Christ. But their sin is really a representative sin. Their sin represents really the darkness that is the reality for every fallen heart. And in that sense, they're not the worst of sinners. They are a picture of all sinners. They are a picture of the depth of man's rejection of God as he is and and of the deadly effects of false religion. They picture that no matter what privileges we receive as sinners, no matter what privileges and mercies and divine kindnesses that we receive from God, at the end of the day, the heart will always reject Him. The fallen heart, apart from divine grace, will always reject Him. And they display for us that religion, or false religion, apart from the reality of regeneration, is ultimately one of the greatest tools of Satan. Religion is not an example of man's best attempt to try to know God It is, in fact, one of the most shining examples of their rejection 
of God and trying to cover up the true knowledge of him with a God made in their own image to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so the nation of Israel really displays those two things for us. And all of that comes to a head here in this final scene of the rejection of the world against Christ. Let's notice first here in verse 39 then, the derision of the unbelieving. The derision of the unbelieving. Matthew mentions three groups here and three particular taunts against the person of Christ. The first group here in verse 39 that we are introduced to is those who were passing by. Those who were passing by. Now, this could refer to anybody who was traveling along the road. If you'll remember that crucifixion was by design a public event. The intention of crucifixion was that it would be open for all to see so that it would be a warning against any crime that might be committed. It would be a warning to say, essentially, this is what will happen to you if you defy the authority of the state, if you commit a crime worthy of death. And so it was a public event, and certainly there are those who are just passing by along the road who would have seen it. But Matthew is specifically here identifying those of a Jewish origin, those certainly who were among the crowds, who were crying out for his blood, who were falling under the influence of the religious leaders and crying out for him to be crucified. It's possible that there were some here who witnessed the events earlier in the false trial because they're going to level the same charge against him, you who declare to be the Son of God, and you, as we'll see, who's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. Of course, that's very likely as well that they learned this just by hearsay because these would have been the same arguments that the leaders would have been using against the crowds to convince them to reject Christ as the Messiah and to turn him over to the Roman authorities. In either case, Matthew is here emphasizing in this descending fashion the type of rejection and heaping mockery of the world against Christ. And so here in verse 39, these who are passing by, these who are seeing Christ now in this weakened and bloodied state hanging on the cross, take the opportunity to hurl abuse at him in the most disdainful way. It says those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, the end of verse 39, and they were wagging their heads, wagging their heads. This again is just a picture of the utter disdain that they had for him, the utter, utter disgust that they felt towards Christ. It's, a, it's really a picture of a kind of gloating, a, kind of, a sense of superiority, a sense of having the right to look down on and condemn this one who has been so rejected. It's a way to put salt in the wound. It's a way to show a, a kind of arrogant advantage over one that clearly has been so rejected by God. And it's really a kind of arrogance that those among the nation of Israel would have been well familiar with. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned in other places in the Old Testament, but in Lamentations 2.15 particularly, this is a time of God's wrath against the nation, his rejection of them because of their sin. And as Jerusalem lay in ruins... The nations of the world looked at this ruined nation, this, this people so afflicted by God and by others, 
so rejected in verse 15 of Lamentations 2 says this, And all who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. And they say, Is this the city of which they said, The perfection of beauty, a joy to all of the earth? In other words, it's the same kind of mocking. It's the same kind of arrogant rejection that says clearly these are those who have been rejected by God and the intention is nothing more than to rub it in the face of those who are so afflicted. But more specifically, as throughout this account, there is the imagery of Psalm 22 that Matthew is laying before us here. And remember, the idea of Psalm 22, it's a psalm of David, is of the righteous suffering at the hands of the unrighteous. The taunts that come to the righteous who are afflicted at the unrighteous who are increasing their affliction by their taunts and their mockery. Listen to verses 4 through 7, which are reflected in in Matthew. It says this, just listen, Psalm 22. In you our fathers trusted, David is speaking, they trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip and they wag their head. And they wag their head. Now, it's actually quite unintentional, I believe, here that these leaders are fulfilling this typological prophecy. In other words, it's not a direct prophecy, but David is the king of Israel, stands as one who represents God's people, and he himself here is suffering as the righteous king and provides an example of the ultimate suffering that would come through the son of David, the promised son of David, here suffering as well at the hands of God's people. And it's an amazing account of spiritual blindness. And it is so because these who were passing by, understood Psalm 22. They weren't ignorant of the Lord's words. They understood it, and yet they were totally blind to their own participation in the wicked that are found in Psalm 22. Here they are fulfilling that role against Christ, and yet they don't even realize it, and they are. Christ is fulfilling the role of the one who is being so rejected. And so wagging their head... Mocking him, they say, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You'll remember that. This has been brought up several times. It was the charge that the false witnesses brought against Christ in that night trial back in chapter 26, verse 61. They were looking for false witnesses. Finally, they had some that came forth and they said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, the reader of Scripture knows that that is, in fact, a misunderstanding of the Lord's words. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was, in fact, talking about the temple of his body that was here being destroyed and would be raised in three days. Nonetheless, they were taking his words and distorting them and trying to use them against them. And the essence of their taunt, however, is this. If you are truly one with such power, if you are truly one who has such 
glorious power that you could do such an awesome act, then you are certainly one that could come down from this cross. You are certainly one who could avoid the kind of torture and the kind of shame and the kind of disdain and rejection that you're now subjecting yourself to. But even more than that, they say if you are the Son of God, not only if you are the one with that kind of power, but if you are the Son of God as you claim to be, go ahead and come down from the cross. Does that ring a bell to you? That language? The temptation in the wilderness? Remember Satan? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from the pinnacle of this temple and God's angels will come and catch you. If you are the Son of God, prove it. If you are the Son of God, clearly you could avoid this kind of suffering. You remember it's also a temptation of Satan that came not only directly from his mouth, but through the mouth of Peter. Jesus said that he was going to be rejected. He was going to be killed by the leaders and raised on three days. You remember that in Matthew chapter 16. Peter pulled him aside and said, never is this going to happen to you. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Get behind me, Satan. At every point along the way, there is a diabolical, there is a demonic, there is a satanic attempt to dissuade Christ from going to the cross. And that's exactly what it is here. To dissuade him from actually giving himself over to death to simply increase his suffering as well was certainly the intentions of those saying it. And that's really the deeper element of this kind of taunting. It's the kind of hurt of having your deepest and most cherished relationship challenged and undermined. One old commentator, Hendrickson, says this, Nothing, no nothing was dearer to him than that relation of intimacy between himself and the Father. And now these adversaries, by alluding to the words of Psalm 22.8, are implying that his heavenly Father has lost all interest in him and that his trust in God is now Futile. Imagine the kind of searing pain to the heart this would have caused Christ. Even though he knew the end, here the Father whom he loved so dearly, the Father whom in his very suffering and death he was obeying out of love, the Father whom he had known from all eternity, here his relationship with him being questioned, And this is a powerful, powerful rebuke and argument of the wicked against the godly. You may have felt that. Maybe some of you have had a time of trial, a time of suffering of some level that was mocked by the unbelieving. If you were a Christian, how would God let this happen to you? If you were truly redeemed by God, why would he treat one of his children this way? And and really, in fact, you have to endure it. You have to simply put up with it until, in God's own time, He delivers you. Listen to the words of Psalm 42. The the psalmist knew this. He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? In verse 9, I will say to my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the wicked? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? 
So the righteous know that. They know that kind of taunting and that kind of ridicule that comes from the world. That ridicule against God, a questioning of your own salvation, of the goodness of the one that you've put your trust in. No one felt that like Christ did. Here being the eternal Son of God, being challenged in his own relationship with the one he loves. Why would the Father love you Would he let this happen? And it goes even down further. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And this group is actually a bit more stinging than even the others. The others are the crowds in general, and that's bad enough, but these, are, again, are the leaders. These are essentially the group of those who make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the legal body for the nation of Israel, for Jerusalem. And these have been the chief antagonists, of course, throughout the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, and here they are finally heaping on their final scorn against him whom they have rejected. And again, the leaders are unwittingly, unwittingly Fulfilling what was anticipated by Psalm 22. Commit yourself to the Lord, Psalm 22, 8. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him because he delights in him. If you're so loved by God, why is this happening? Why is God letting this happening? And it should be noted here, just as a footnote, that within Jewish literature, there was a certain sympathy or a certain compassion that the leaders and the people of the nation of Israel were to show towards those who were so condemned. There was a certain kind of mercy, at least in the attitude, that was to be shown towards those who were suffering so much. But all of that, of course, as it has been throughout, has been thrown out the window. And was one said, an old commentator, instead of rebuking and restraining the populace, from using him in such an ill manner, an unkind manner, they themselves stood mocking him with the scribes and the elders. And the idea here is is that every kind of natural restraint has been removed and the full mocking and the full scorn of the world is heaped on him. And there's even a, a subtle way that this is shown. Notice that the leaders here, they don't speak directly to Christ, they speak about Christ. They speak about him in the third person. Now, some say that this is possibly because they actually weren't at the cross. They may have been somewhere else. Matthew is just recording this conversation for us. But that seems highly unlikely. The fact is that these leaders who have been so personally and intimately involved in every part of his destruction and every part of his death surely would not have missed the opportunity to scorn him to his face. No, no doubt they are saying these words in the hearing of his ears taking every opportunity to increase his pain. And yet the fact that they won't even address him directly is just another picture of their scorn. He said he who saved saved others, he cannot save himself. What kind of salvation is he talking about here? Could be meaning that he who said he could save others from their sin. You remember in Matthew chapter 9. Your sins are forgiven. And they say, who forgives sins but God? They rejected the fact that he had that authority and power, though he proved it by his raising that leper from his mat and having him walk out. It could be salvation from disease and 
sickness and all kind of the effects of sin in this world. And they're saying, you were able to deliver others and make the lame walk, heal lepers, cast out demons, heal sickness, and yet you cannot come down from the cross? What kind of hypocrisy is that? In either case, whichever it was, I think it was probably a combination of both in some sense. But in either case, the point is they refused to believe. And now this is a vindication in their own mind of their rejection of his role as a savior. And what an incredible sense of vindication and power they would have felt in their heart. What an incredible sense of arrogant pride and superiority it must have given these leaders to have been those who were humiliated by him. Remember, as he stumped them in their questions as he gave to them this excoriating condemnation and the woes of chapter 23, they had to sit there and take it, but now they get to be on the other side. Now they get to be the ones heaping the scorn. And surely they were the ones in the right because they are the ones at the foot of the cross and he is the one on the cross. Surely God is on their side. Surely God is vindicating them as the right ones and him as being in the wrong. And so they had... Justification in their minds for every kind of vile and wicked lust that they had against him. And it doesn't stop with them either. Look at what he says here from verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him as well were also insulting him with the same words. And again, the idea here is simply to show the comprehensiveness and the completeness of the mockery. Not only from the crowds... Not only from Pilate, not only from the leaders, not only from the Roman soldiers. Their mockery is recorded in Luke 23. But now even these criminals, even these criminals who are sharing his same fate took every opportunity to insult him. And the language here has the idea behind all of these that it was a continual insulting. It wasn't like one snide remark. It was a continually, continually insulting him and mocking him and saying these things over and over and wave after wave against the Son of God. And the point is this. That Christ, in giving himself in love to the Father in obedience, is giving himself to be rejected by the world. Mark referred to him as the son of the blessed one, and yet now he receives the insults and the mockery of the world to its fullest extent. And he is then the ultimate example of what we covered in Matthew 5, as we've mentioned before. Blessed are you when you receive the insults of the world, when you're rejected, when you're hated, when you're persecuted. There's no persecution that you and I can endure. There's no insult that we can receive that could even come close to paralleling what Christ himself endured on our behalf. And the fact is that faithfulness to Christ will sometimes bring the rejection of the world. When Christians suffer, when Christians are the means of derision and the mockery of the world, it is standing in the line of Christ. It is sharing in his life. It is participating in his own suffering. It is, as Paul said, to fill up the measure of the suffering of Christ. All of the hatred that was meant still against Christ is being filled up by his people. But here it finds its most intense expression. Now, with all that said, I want to notice a couple of things here. First of all, this. The logic of their unbelief. The logic of their unbelief, which really stands against the logic of all unbelief and rejection of Christ. They said, if you are the Son of God, then you would come down from the cross. 
If you are the king of Israel, then you would not be given over to such humiliation and mockery. But in fact, that was just exactly backwards. Let me just, in noting a few points here, recognize this first. That they willfully disregarded evidence. Unbelief willfully disregards evidence to the person of Christ. Willfully disregards evidence against, uh, that testifies to the person of Christ. These leaders and these crowds had seen him do these very things. They had seen him give sight to the blind. They had seen him cause a leopard to be cleansed. To see a paralyzed person stand up and walk. To feed thousands of people from only a few loaves and fish. They had seen him raise the dead in the person of Lazarus. That's why many followed him, in fact, into Jerusalem. That was part of the crowds just who were responding to that great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. These leaders knew that. They knew that, and yet they willfully disregarded it. And that's what unbelief does. Calvin captured this well in these words. He said, Taking offense at the present humiliation of Christ, they utterly disregarded all the miracles which he had formerly formerly performed before their eyes. They knew the testimony of John the Baptist, his knowledge and wisdom in the word, but they refused to believe it. Why? Because belief, it's not that complicated, would have required their repentance. They're humbling. They're becoming poor in spirit. If you are unbelieving this morning against the overwhelming testimony of Christ, at the end of the day, whatever excuse you may offer, it is ultimately an unwillingness to acknowledge your guilt and your need completely of His saving grace. The issue of unbelief is not, regardless of what the intellectual elite might try to present, the issue of unbelief is not intellectual. It's moral. It's spiritual. Dawkins does not ultimately disregard the truth about Christ or any of that ilk because of evolution or something else. That's a smokescreen. Ultimately, they hate and disdain a crucified Savior that demands their faith and complete lordship over their life. That's what's hated. Everything else is an excuse. All of the things these people are offering here as they mock him is simply an excuse. What they hated was the fact that he claimed absolute sovereign rights over their life. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. The darkness hates the light. Why? Because when it comes to the light, what? Its deeds are exposed as evil. It's not complicated. It's really not complicated. And so here, despite the evidence that they'd seen, they utterly rejected this is what unbelief does. It does a second thing too. It misinterprets God's work. It misinterprets God's work. Because they did not learn anything from the miracles and the teaching, they were then unable to form any right conclusions about his suffering. So all of their perceptions of God were wrong. They saw only weakness with Christ hanging there on the cross. Though in fact, he was displaying his power. His power to save, his power to overcome death. 
they saw rejection by God, but in fact, it was one of the greatest displays of love for God. They saw only condemnation, though God was accomplishing salvation. And that's what the wicked always do. They're always going to misinterpret God's work. Whatever he does, they're going to choose unbelief will to see it through its own wrong evaluation and come then to wrong conclusions. Again, let me mention Calvin who says this, it's customary with all wicked men to estimate the power of God by present appearances so that whatever he does does not accomplish they think does not accomplish what they think that he cannot accomplish and so they accuse him of weakness whenever he does not comply to their wicked desire. In other words, if it doesn't God doesn't conform to the idea of God, of the unbelieving mind, then they use that as a justification then to reject Him. I'll mention that again in just a bit. But here we see it on display in these leaders, and we see it in display around the world around us. They're going to misunderstand the cross. They're going to misunderstand God's work in this world. They're going to always misinterpret unbelief will, because it's starting from the wrong place. Unbelief will always find an excuse to not believe. It's kind of like there's a, it was an old debate once between an atheist and a Christian apologist. And so one of the things this atheist said, a common argument, was, you know, if, if you could take this podium right now, if your God would do that, and, and raise it up off the ground and make it hover above, then I would believe. And the answer is, of course, no, you wouldn't. Because as soon as that podium came up off the ground, you would be amazed for a little while, and then all of a sudden you would try to start inventing every kind of explanation you could to deny, in fact, that that was a work of God. You see, that's how unbelief goes. There was another time an atheist said to an apologist, he cursed God uh, there, and he says, so if your God were really existed, if he were true, then he would strike me dead right now. And the apologist wisely responded, you think that you could exhaust the patience of God in so short a time? You're misreading what's going on. You're taking that as non-existence, but in fact it is God's patience towards you. It is God's long-suffering towards you. And so it is here. They're misinterpreting what God's doing. He is accomplishing salvation, and they're seeing it as rejection. Totally misunderstanding God's work. Totally misunderstanding God's work. And they have it completely, completely backwards. Completely backwards. His power is not seen in his coming down from the cross, but in his defeating sin and death through the cross. Now some see this as a temptation, a final one of the uh, temptation of Christ. And, and it is in one sense from the the, the people who are the leaders and the others who are passing by in terms of what they're trying to do to Christ to get him to act contrary to the will of God. It is in that sense. But I don't think so much that it is in the heart of Christ. He'd already given himself over. The great temptation was in the garden. That was where he yielded. That's where he looked at what was facing him and his heart was totally submitted to the Father. Remember, it was him who got up to meet his accusers, to meet those who were going to reject him. The picture is rather here again of his obedience in light of such rejection. His perfect obedience. And he's a picture then of our own obedience. Our own obedience. 
You know, Matthew 13 says there's a, there's a faith that's, that doesn't really have roots. It doesn't go deep. And so it might give some kind of profession, but once the insults come, once the persecution comes, it, it goes away. But the one who has roots deeply grounded in trust in Christ and faith in him doesn't go away, but it endures through obedience. And that's the kind of obedience that Christ is displaying here. Despite whatever is thrown at him, his determination was to in every way and without fail obey the Father and accomplish that for which he was given to do. He's the model. He's the model of genuine, genuine faith and trust in the will of of the Father. I want you to notice one other thing here then. The wrong assumptions behind this unbelief. The logic is, is that God would never let this happen. But there's some wrong assumptions behind it as well. And the first is this. Well, this is the assumption. That God would not allow himself to be so weakened and humiliated before men. God would destroy his enemies. He certainly would not allow himself to be defeated by them. Again, the Jews simply could not accept the idea of a crucified Messiah. They only had the idea of one who would reign in power and glory. And as we mentioned before, this was throughout the whole Roman world. I mean, when the church had a message that went out in that first century world that essentially said, this crucified Jewish rabbi is the son of God. He was raised from the dead and your entire destiny, the destiny of the world depends on your response to him. That was a message of foolishness to the Greeks. They simply had no category even for that kind of God. They had no category for it. The Jews certainly didn't have any category. And it was a stumbling block to them. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. Matter of fact, there's one particular example in Greek mythology about this God who was crucified. But in the end, he escapes and he ends up getting vindication and vengeance. And that was as close as they could get to the idea of one who was divine of experiencing this kind of suffering. They had no category of a God who would willingly give himself up for his people with this kind of suffering. They just had no category for it. And so when we give this message to the world, we have to understand, apart from illuminating grace and enlightening grace of the Holy Spirit, it is a message of just absolute foolishness. And so it was to them, the conception of a God that would do this is completely unreasonable. And this touches then on the issue of theodicy. This really touches on the issue of theodicy. What is theodicy? Some of you know that word, some of you don't. It's really, it's really a discussion that relates to this idea. How can God be good and all-powerful and sin and suffering exist in this world? That is the number one, one of the number one attacks of unbelief against the Christian God. Against the God who is. How could God be good and powerful and allow suffering? How could that happen? And that's essentially what they're leveling against him here. And let me tell you, if you watch Christian movies, I know a lot of them are really frustrating, but even the better ones, this is the one point where they always fail. This is the one point where they always fail in an explanation about God. They say something along these lines, and I'm even paraphrasing some. Well, 
God was as sorry as you were when this happened. He did his best to stop the sin from happening, but he certainly wouldn't violate the human will. And he's as sorry as you are, but God will help you and comfort you and walk through it with you. You see, it's, it's this idea of how can God be good, how can he be powerful, and how can he allow such suffering? The Jews, though they should have, had no category for that. The Greeks had no category for that. The unbelieving mind simply doesn't have a category for that. And that is a challenge that always comes against the gospel. Listen to their words. This is exactly what they're saying. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Implication, if God really loved him, he wouldn't let him suffer. If he really was God's son, he certainly wouldn't let him endure this. That's the idea. If he really was the son of God, the father wouldn't let this happen. They can't reconcile suffering with sovereignty and goodness. To the unbelieving mind, this simply can't be brought together. And let me tell you, this is again an argument that unbelief uses against Christians. And it's a kind of logic that can cause some Christians to stumble, to question. How could God be let this be happening in my own life if in fact I am his child? How could God let me endure such suffering or others endure such suffering if in fact he is good? If in fact he is all-powerful and could have stopped it? Why would he let this happen? One says this along that lines. Satan therefore attempts to drive us to despair by this logic. That it is in vain that it is in vain focused to feel assured of the love of God when we do not clearly perceive his aid. He suggests to our mind, Satan, that God has sold and abandoned our salvation because he delays to give us assistance. We ought to reject this as a false argument. Indeed, nothing is more unreasonable than to limit his love to any point of time. In other words, they're looking only at this rejection and they're totally blind to the bigger picture of what God is doing. And they're saying, if God were good, if you were the son of God, if God truly loved you, this is very similar to what Satan said, if you threw yourself off, God wouldn't let any harm come to you. If God really loved you, if God really was your father, he certainly wouldn't let this be happening. And you can imagine the kind of temptation that that would assail the mind to. Why is this happening? Why am I abandoned? Why, is, why am I suffering in this way? But again, Christ is the example of faith. He hears these. He endures it. He does trust in God. He does know that God is doing something much bigger than can what be seen than what can be seen in that specific moment of time. He looks at the bigger picture. He looks at the future. He knows that God is just. God will deliver. God will accomplish His promises. And this is the path by which He would do that. Through his suffering. That same writer says this. It is therefore contrary to the nature of faith. That the world now should be insisted upon those whom God is training. By the cross and by the adversity to obedience. And whom he entreated to pray and to call on his name. For these are rather the testimonies of his fatherly love. In other words, when there is suffering in the life of the believer. It is not... It is not what God is doing to destroy, but it's what God is doing to accomplish a greater good. In your life as a child 
of God, if you know him, the suffering that he brings into your life is to conform you to the very image of him who's suffering here on your behalf, to learn obedience through what you suffer, to increase your understanding of grace, to increase your faith, to increase your hope, to increase your trust in your father. Unbelief doesn't see that. You see, unbelief simply looks at it and says, would never happen. That's a reason to reject God. That's a reason to disdain Him. That's a reason to put aside and rebel against His promises in the testimony to Christ. Faith says, no, God is accomplishing something bigger here. God will bring, make it all right. God will bring about justice. God will bring about salvation. God will bring about His purposes in what He is ordaining. And so in the case of Christ, his suffering was in perfect obedience. He's again accomplishing the mission of the Father through which he would bring many sons to glory. The end result wasn't shame. The end result wasn't suffering. The end result was, as the writer of Hebrews says, glory, glory. And so what is the answer to the question of theodicy? It is the cross of Christ, ultimately. There's so much more. It is the, the purposes of God. It is the wisdom of God that's beyond what we can see, that's doing things in our circumstances that we don't know. But it is ultimately the cross where all of that comes together. As a matter of fact, one writer said, the cross of Christ is the odyssey. It's the very embodiment of that, the ultimate suffering for God to accomplish the ultimate good. The ultimate appearance of rejection to accomplish the ultimate work of reconciliation. And acceptance by God. And so that's what's going on here. They're threatening. They're accusing. And God is accomplishing salvation. The suffering will result in the salvation of his people. Justice will be met here at the cross. Or it will be met in the end. When he returns. God is accomplishing a greater work here than what we can see at any one moment of time. And the end of suffering for God's people, even as it was here for the Son of God, is glory, is glory in Christ. But there's a second thing that, there's a second assumption here. I'm going to mention this briefly. So I want to get to the end and have time for the table. The second assumption is this, and this is really in some ways even more foundational. It's this. The first is that God would never let that happen, that suffering and the goodness of God can't go together, but that's false. The second assumption is this, that man's sin is not so deep, not so serious that it requires this kind of sacrifice. That's the second assumption of unbelief. Ultimately, the idea of a crucified God is offensive because the idea that our sin would require that is offensive. Do you see the connection? That was the problem that Jesus kept running up against and he kept confronting again and again throughout his ministry. Why did he come? He came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? He came to call sinners to repentance. Why is it ultimately that they had such a hard time with the crucified Savior? It is because they had such a hard time with understanding and acknowledging the depth of their sin and how deep it really went. Poverty of spirit is completely a work of the Holy Spirit. It is antithetical to every sinful inclination in the heart of fallen man to be broken and humbled like that. 
Listen to what Paul says as he addresses the same people in Romans 10. Just listen. He says, Not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. At the end of the day, they did not need the righteousness that God was providing through Christ because they had their own righteousness secured in their own minds. At the end of the day, if you have unbelief towards Christ, if you're here again this morning and you have unbelief towards Christ and you leave this place hearing a message that you've heard many times before and you live your life in total disregard to what you've heard, it is because Satan has so blinded your mind and crowded you with a wrong understanding of God and of sin that you somehow think that your soul is not in peril and needs the sacrifice that God has provided in Christ. At the end of the day, that's it. Sin simply isn't that bad. Your sin simply isn't that bad. We who have trusted in Christ know that our sin is that bad. We look at the cross and we go, of course, of course my sin would require that. But the unbelief doesn't do that. And their unbelief didn't do that. It's like he told the church in Revelation 3.17, Laodicea. He says, you're rich, you're comfortable, you have it all. You don't know that you're blind, that you're naked. In other words, that you're condemned. You can't see it. And this is really the key assumption behind all unbelief. And there's a last one here on this point. Self-deceiving. There's unbelief is self-deceiving about the criteria of faith. They said, we will believe. Look at what they said. You come down from the cross at the end of verse 42 and we will believe. Of course they wouldn't believe. Of course they wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, as you know, the greater miracle that Christ, God will perform in Christ isn't his coming down from the cross. It's what? What are we celebrating on Easter? The resurrection. The resurrection is the greater miracle, right? It's not coming down from the cross. That actually is not only would it be against the will of God, it's not near as impressive as going into the grave and rising out of it again. Never to die again. That's the miracle. And if man isn't going to believe that, then nothing else that he does will they believe. That's what he's held up. Remember, that was the proclamation in the early gospel. That was what Paul preached. He says, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You remember what Jesus told the crowds in Luke 16. You remember, we won't look at it, but the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man is in Hades. He's suffering there. He wants him to just, Lazarus, to just bring over a drop of water to cool his tongue. And then this man who's in Hades, who's suffering, he says to their father Abraham, a euphemism for God, he says, Go and warn my brother. Send somebody to warn my family so that they won't also have to come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, or no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. 
Why? Evidence is not the issue. Rebellion, moral rejection of the requirement of God is the issue. So then that brings us to this last thing, and this is the last point. That there's two possible responses then. Two possible responses. Two ways to look at the suffering of the Christ, cross, of Christ, of Christ on the cross. Now, here, Matthew is emphasizing then the unbelief. The unbelief, the assumptions of unbelief, the actions of unbelief, the words of unbelief against Christ. One, again, says this. This is Calvin, actually. He says, The Jews, in consequence of having imagined to themselves a king who had been suggested to them by their own sense, rejected Christ crucified because they reckoned it absurd to believe in him, while we, those who are believing, regarded as the best and highest reason for believing that he voluntarily subjected himself on our account to the ignominy of the cross. In other words, one person looks at the cross and the suffering of Christ and says, See, see, that's why I can't believe in him. I refuse to believe in that kind of God. I refuse to believe in a God who would do that to his son. This is what atheists argue. I refuse to believe in a God who would allow that kind of suffering to an innocent person. I refuse to believe it. Why? Because of the cross, essentially. But the eyes of faith look and broken say, See? See? There is my Savior. There is the one who suffered for me. There is the one who took the shame of my sin upon the cross so that I could be set free, be freed from my shame forever, clothed in Christ, accepted as a son to be holy and blameless forever. One says, see, see, there is the Savior that my soul needs. That's the forgiveness that I need. That's the eyes of faith. One sees through the blind eyes of proud unbelief the other through the clear eyes of faith and behold the glory of God in a crucified and risen Savior. And this is most dramatically illustrated by Luke, actually. And this is with the two criminals on the cross. The two criminals on the cross. So these who Matthew have already identified as being one on his right and one on his left are also an illustration of the two ways to respond to Christ. Verse 39 of Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So that's the insults, the taunting that were coming from them that Matthew mentioned. But the other, at some point, changed. And the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, being Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You shall be with me in paradise. The one was believing. How do we know what he was believing? Because he demonstrated faith. He had a right sense of the holiness of God and the justness of his own condemnation. We indeed are suffering justly. That's the first step of saving faith is to realize the righteousness of God and your failure to conform to it and the justness of your guilt and condemnation. That's the first understanding of saving faith. 
is to feel in yourself the justness of God's condemnation toward you personally, not man in general, toward you personally, for your offenses to God. Second, although Christ hung there under the same condemnation as the thief, he saw past the external appearances to the innocence and the true glory of Christ. He said, this man has done no wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He knew that Christ was king over the nation and the world. He knew that he was the ultimate authority. And he knew that he would one day reign in glory. He knew that he had a kingdom that would never end. He knew that everything that he said was in fact true, though he may not have had a perfect knowledge. He knew enough to know that he was truly a king. This cross was not going to be the end for him. And he believed. And he trusted in divine grace. He said, remember me. So in other words, that's like saying, show me divine mercy and grace. Don't count my sin against me, but let me participate in your righteous kingdom. That's the cry of faith. That's what Judas did not do. Judas acknowledged his sin. Judas acknowledged his wrong. Judas acknowledged the innocence of Christ, but Judas did not trust in divine grace. He didn't humble himself that far. This criminal did. But there are two criminals there. Two. One remained hardened in unbelief and one believed. One went to paradise and one is even this day suffering eternal perdition and judgment. One old writer, J.C. Rundell, says this. A fact like this should teach us humility. How it is that under precisely the same circumstances one man is converted and another remains dead in sins. Why, the very same sermon is heard by one man with perfect indifference and sends another home to pray and seek Christ. Why the same gospel is hid to one and revealed to another is a divine mystery. But each of you will leave with different responses. Some will be a response of worship. Some will be a response of utter indifference and disdain. One will leave with the, the aroma of heaven and one will remain we leave with the aroma of judgment. This is assumed succinctly by Ryle. He says, One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. That might presume. But the one who doesn't presume and trust, Jesus says to them, as he does know this thief, Today, or to those of us now, one day, you shall be with me in paradise. That's complete forgiveness of sin. Complete forgiveness of sin. That's the promise of complete reconciliation. This man's life had been an offense to God all the way up to the last hours of his death, and he was completely forgiven. He offered him no works, no righteousness, simply a faith that took Christ as he was, acknowledging guilt and trusting him, and was saved. Some use an excuse and say, well, my life has been too bad. God would never accept me. It's just that. It's an excuse. It's really a covering to want to stay in your sin. Because the reality is, is that for every repentant sinner, Jesus says the same words. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So while the leaders rejected and mocked that this man embraced, and while some hear the message still today, some even in this room, and will treat it with indifference or mocking, others of us see in Christ Savior for our sin. And it's those of us who see in Christ the true Savior for our sin that come to the table now to rejoice in Him. And so let me remind you as the men come forward and we're going to pass out the elements that this table is only for those who believe. 
only for those who believe. If you do not see in your life a clear evidence of trust in Christ, a love for him that is shown in the desire to keep his commandments and to know him in fellowship, that longs to be with him, this table is not for you. In fact, the warning of Scripture is that it will become a means of judgment to you if you take it in unbelief and in an unworthy manner. So if you do not know Christ, we would implore you to let the elements pass by and even this morning to cry out to God to change your heart, your rebellious heart, and to forgive you of your sin. For those of us who do know Christ, we take it as an act of worship, as an act of remembrance, and an act of proclamation of His glory. So let's take a moment to pray, and then they'll hand out the elements and we'll take them together. Father, we thank you for... This tremendous provision of a Savior. Oh Christ, we thank you for your coming and providing for us all that our soul needs. A Savior, cleansing from sin, redemption, that we might be through you reconciled to the Father and counted as children, even saints. One day, though guilty and vile are we, will stand holy and blameless in your presence and enjoy it forevermore. So help us to who know you to offer to you this glad and joyful worship. And for others, I pray that again, it might be the day they enter into that salvation. In your name, Jesus, amen.